0: Welcome, everybody, to the eighth episode of Redbeard Radio. Uh, today, I am joined with Andrew Metal. Uh, Andrew has been one of uh, RBV's earliest investments uh, as he was the founder of Dudilly. He was actually the, our Redbeard Venture Syndicate's first exit. Um, which is also really exciting. So today we're gonna to talk a little bit about um, the sports card industry and some of the technology that he was working on um, at DoDilly. We'll talk a little bit about his experience as a founder to exit um, and just kind of mix it up and talk shop. Remember everybody to like, uh, you know, subscribe, share um, and feel free to comment. Andrew and I can both jump into the YouTube comments at any time and we'll do our best to respond to any questions or comments that come up. Uh, and then, without further ado, let's jump right in. Andrew, what's up, buddy?
1: What's up, brother? Good to see you. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, man. Of course. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, I want to talk a little bit broadly first. Let's start with like what. So you built a business in this, You, you built a business, DoDilly, which maybe you could tell people a little bit briefly about of what its what its value proposition was. And then I want to get into like what attracted you to this market and like why the sports card space has something to
1: yeah so do Dilly is essentially a computer vision app that basically graded a card a sports card the same way a human does so we we taught a computer how to see things the way a human does so in the sports card industry uh, you know it's obviously been around for a long time there's a ton of legacy tech um you know a lot of incumbents are just outdated and and so the opportunity i saw early on was hey we can teach a, a computer how to do the same things that uh these humans are doing and um, and so what I saw was just a, a, an influx of, well, we can go into the space in a little bit, but the reason I got into the space, is I saw a lot of people jumping in, a lot of venture money being poured in, and I just felt like it was a, is an opportunity for us to capitalize on leveraging technology uh, to replace humans.
0: And so were you... Were you a sports card collector, investor? Like I'm a, you know, personally, I I love alt asset investing in general. Um, Do you consider this an alt alternative asset class? Um, Is it is it an attractive opportunity for investors? Tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are on sports cards uh, as an investment and and your experience there.
1: Yeah, so I I got into this space. So when I was younger, obviously, I I collected cards all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. Was a collector, uh, you know, back when I was, you know, very early. Uh, you know, eight to 10, I think, you know, uh, use the Beckett price guides to kind of value cards. And that's kind of how I got in and, you know, collected cards and stuff when I was young. Um, You know, fast forward decades later, and uh, my buddy had actually gotten back into collecting sports cards around 2014. Um, I had some extra cash. I would just send him, you know, money. I say, hey, let's build up a portfolio. So, um, we saw it as an opportunity to, you know, I viewed it as, 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 an alternative asset class. I saw it as a way to potentially throw some dollars into some cards in hopes that they would obviously appreciate in value. Um, since then, obviously our, our portfolio has done it really well. Um, and so around, you know, 2000, I think it was 17, 18 time. Um, I had been building different companies more like B2B SaaS. I had a couple exits and it was just kind of like burnt out on, you know, all the B two B SaaS analytics, you know, stuff that you got to deal with when you when you deal with B two B SaaS. And so I was like, dude, I'm looking for something new. And he got he piqued my interest again with the sports card space. Uh, this is a friend of mine. You know, he and I've been close for 20 plus years, and so we had been building our portfolio. I didn't really look much into it as like a business opportunity other than just you know uh, alt investing, but. Uh, at At that point, I started kind of take a deeper look into it, just trying to understand like what's out there, who's there, what competitors, what what kind of tech exists. and that's really when I dug up the opportunity to uh, to to go after um you know what we did with duedily, which is create a computer vision engine to grade cards the same way humans do
0: and and the grading card problem is an interesting one to work on because if you're familiar with sports card collecting and the grading process. A, it seems that most of the value today is, is uh, derived by quality grades. So I mean, first of all, it plays a huge role in the value and the value creation of sports card collectibles. The second is it's a tremendously manual process, which creates massive delays, tons of friction. Like, I have cards. I've never sent my stuff in for grading. It just is too much of like an obstacle at this point for me to like even do. So, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about like what, you know, what what did, during your process of researching the market, like what did you learn about the grading, the grading aspect of the business?
1: Well, those things you mentioned, one still exists exists everywhere within the space, and then two, was really the you know the thesis of what DoDilly was is like, look, this is a burdensome process. The, the grading process, if people that don't know, you take a raw piece of cardboard, you know, you have a human look at it, tell the quality of the of the the condition of the card basically and assign a grade from basically, you know, one to ten, ten being the highest. If you have a a, a ten grade, obviously that that card then becomes worth more. And then you encapsulate that card in a plastic container and you preserve the quality of the card. And that's what makes it basically an investable asset. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, I, I saw all of those problems. Um, you know, a cumbersome problem when it relates to, you know, timing and logistics to actually having to mail your cardboard cards out, you know, they can get lost or damaged in the mail, you know, uh, if they get damaged, they become worthless or be, be decrease in value tremendously, um, you know, lost, that's a totally different story, you know, obviously a major problem. And so all of these problems continue to like surface i'm like wow this is another problem this is another problem and, and so when we we realized when i realized okay like this industry is still completely outdated it, you know you have ebay who's like the the first place people go to buy and sell cards and it's you know a web 1.0 auction site most of the demographic who are buying cards now the the younger demographic they weren't even born when ebay started so how can that company facilitate, you know, transactions to a market that, that they're so much older than. Um, And so we just saw like all of these issues when it comes to, you know, logistics, the human intervention, you know, mailing, shipping, uh, even the transaction process itself. And we did have a marketplace with DuDilly, um, you know, basically like a Carfax. So you you could see all the important information of a card using computer vision taking a picture with your phone and gain all that information and detail uh, you know essentially instantly so that you can then make the best decision whether you're a buyer or a seller
0: and what's the, like the the competitive landscape around um, what's the competitive landscape around the grading market because I know there are there are a few different companies that that do grading is it like are some you know more just more like trusted than others is it you know, and and you know, just tell me a little about the the competition in that area.
1: Yeah, so there are you know a handful of uh, companies that have been around since like the eighties and nineties, namely Beckett, which is uh, you know Beckett grading, Beckett price guy that I mentioned. PSA is a is pretty much arguably you know one of the top graders in the space, and then you have a few others, um, and all these companies have been around for a, a good period of time. Um, that was one of the rebuttals that people had against our technology is, hey, you're competing against these companies that have been around, you know, for decades, you know, since the 80s, sometime, you know, I think that's the earliest in the 80s. So you have these companies that have been around for decades. How are you gonna be able to, to prove your trustworthiness within the market? Um, you know, and, and, and that was, you know, a big question that everyone had. Um, what we did was we were able to bring in different partners um, that help provide a credibility to that layer of technology, and, You know, whether it's resellers or just people within the space that said, hey, this is accurate. Um, we would actually go out to shows, to card shows, and we would physically break open PSA cases and we would run our technology to show, hey, this is what a PSA grader, a human PSA grader gave the card. And this is what our technology does. And this is how accurate it is. Wow. Um, so uh, uh, the competitive nature of the space Uh, You know, there's these incumbents have been around for a long time. And then once we started getting going, we noticed there were a couple other computer vision based companies as well. One got acquired by PSA, um, you know, and so that put a lot more pressure on the space to then have to adopt additional technology because, you know, the competitors to PSA didn't want to, you know, have, uh, you know, they didn't want PSA to have a competitive advantage against them to be able to scale and, and grade faster. And so that also put a lot of pressure on the rest of the industry. Uh, so you did start seeing a, a couple other companies come out and try to do what we were, we had been doing.
0: That's interesting. So that also kind of lends itself to the other, like another part of the conversation I wanted to get into. So the outcome of your, of your startup, your business, was uh, that you ended up getting acquired. Can you talk through, how did that process even begin? Um, you know, then I, obviously I, I want to talk about like what life was like post, but like also just like, let's first say like, where, you know, how did that, st- how did the discussions begin and how did you like start to shift towards like, Hey, this is good. We, we, this is the right time, right place, right, right place all of that.
1: Yeah. Um, you never really, well, let me reverse that. So sometimes you build and you think you're going to exit. Uh, I do like to use startups as a wealth creation tool i think sometimes a lot of people see startup as like their baby and they like don't want to let go um you know i think you bring on shareholders shareholders want to see a return um, so in terms of like how we actually started the process um we didn't do it intentionally what we were doing is like i mentioned we're actually going to all these different card shows and actually showcasing showing off our technology showing how accurate it was uh, comparing it to Ah, uh, human grader. So we would go to these different card shows, and we'd have our team crack cases and show, hey, this is what a human grader gave this card, and you can scan it, run it yourself, and download the app. You know, obviously, we got a lot of user downloads that way. Uh, but this is what you know. You can compare it directly to a human grader, and we start doing that over and over. And uh, at a at the Dallas card show uh, in January of twenty, in December of twenty twenty one, Beckett which is one of the big uh, gradient agencies um, saw our demo and they got very interested. Um, PSA had acquired a company called Geniment prior to us doing that demo. So they knew kind of what was going on and they were in the middle of what they called like a digital transformation. Uh, they wanted to, you know, update their, their tech stack. They wanted to become a little bit more relevant when it, when it relates to technology and adopt new technologies. And so, you know, we started that conversation at that time um, you know, those, those conversations can sometimes take a while. So, uh, you know, it took about eight months for us to realize, okay, this is something that we're pursuing and, and actually go from introduction to, uh, you know, closing, you know, to, to close, um, you know, through the negotiation process with attorneys and everything. But, but that was kind of how it came about. Um, at that point, we did also have another potential choir reach out to us, um, you know, and, and. The story and, and and the vision of what was uh, what was relayed to us and the reason why an acquisition at that time made sense was pretty compelling. Um, it made sense for our shareholders. It made sense for our team. Made sense for the acquiring company. And so, you know, we obviously took everything, um, you know, to heart. Kind of figured out, okay, what what's the best move. And in hindsight, you know, looking at the economy now and kind of how the sports card market has. You know, ebbs and flows and volatility, ups and downs, it it seems like that was probably the best decision we could have made. Um,
0: And what's also interesting, it seems that if other companies are starting to get acquired and the major question for you guys from the beginning was, how are you going to break in and capture market from the the incumbents? Well, the answer could, you know, obviously lend itself to being, you know, by by becoming one of the incumbents and the incumbents. So Interesting enough, like Beckett, when you guys were, when you first let me know, like, hey, the company that we're in late stages with is Beckett, you know, that's a, that's a brand that I knew as when I was, you know, seven, eight years old. You know, I remember buying the magazines and checking my, going through all my card collections and checking the prices, etc. Like how has Beckett reinvented themselves over the years? Um, and what was it like, like talking to this company that's been like one of the most well known, you know, brands in sports card collecting for, I mean, since I've been alive easily.
1: Yeah. And that was what was also very compelling to me, too, is um, that was the, the company that actually got me in the sports card space when I was young. You know, like you said, I think I was eight or nine as well. And, you know, I used to look at these, you know, Beckett Price guys and they really got me into the lobby at that time. Um, I remember like collecting Ken Griffey Jr. cards and like, you know, you know, 90s NBA and like just all these cards that I was like really excited about, um, you know, as a company. They uh, Well, they first started off as being very innovative. Uh, Dr. Beckett, uh, who's the founder of Beckett, um, was kind of a visionary. You know, he used data and analytics very early on. Uh, that was like the whole premise of their company. They weren't a price guide like we all thought they were. They were actually a data and analytics company that was born in the 80s. Um, and so Dr. Beckett had a, a really unique vision and he uh, was very innovative in terms of like at that time, like what what was around and what he was doing with Beckett. Um, since then, they had you know sold multiple times, eventually to private equity. And you know when it when it when when a company leaves the founders' vision and then it moves on to these later stages, you know mostly uh, specifically with private equity. With private equity, it usually comes down to like numbers and hey, how does this make sense? Like, is this making money? Is it losing money? And so, unfortunately within those places, if a company gets to that point, you know it it starts being less about innovation because it just has to make fiscal sense. Sometimes innovation takes time, takes money, takes energy, and it's not necessarily always immediately rewarding. Um, so, you know, at the point that we came around with Beckett, Beckett had been obviously in the space for a long time, but they had been looking to kind of reinvent themselves. the the market that they had been targeting forever. You know, has gotten had gotten so old. You know, some of their 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 prime customers, and you know, unfortunately, aren't even, you know, alive today because the market had gotten so old. Um, you know, they just grew in age, and you know, and so they were really trying to figure out, okay, how do we go after younger demographics? How do we capture, you know, and harness new technology? And so for us, it made a lot of sense. Uh, for them, it made a lot of sense. And 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 that's kind of like, you know, they acquired us and another company, um, as like, hey, this is part of our digital transformation um the private equity company that owned them brought down their ceo to be the interim ceo of beckett and he was very focused on this digital transformation Um, so that was you know that lent itself you know heavily to allowing us to close the acquisitions i think if somebody else was in a position, um, you know, maybe the deals would have been a lot harder. Maybe Beckett wouldn't even been looking for for target acquisitions at that time. But he was really focused on, hey, we need to reinvent the brand. We need to do things that are going to really attract new customers. We need to adopt new technologies, and and so it was it was a good, you know, timing and and place for us to be.
0: Yeah, man, that makes total sense. So, in terms of now, let's talk a little bit briefly about you know post acquisition because you know, it was really, it was, it was a cool experience for us. Cause this was our first, you know, An- the Angelus syndicate We, you know, I think you were probably one of our first, you know, maybe 10 investments or so, I think from, if I can remember correctly when the date, when did you guys start? Or when did you guys raise your first seed round? Um, I don't know. <laughs> we yeah. raised, what is um, this? 2023. I think we
1: raised end of maybe like mid to end of 2022. Um, but I feel like you guys had started, I think the syndicate came in maybe a little earlier than that.
0: Yeah, I thought uh, I it was 2021. So like, yeah, I, I guess because we we've been you around. You could
1: be right. Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I am getting the years confused. Yeah, it was 2021, the end of 2021, I think.
0: Yeah, because we've been around three yeah. years. The, right yeah, yeah, yeah. Three years old. So yeah. I, imagine, I imagine, yeah, you guys couldn't have been too far into it for us. But, yeah, you know, sorry, then, 2021, that's right. Yeah. And what's been cool is like for us, I you know at that time I'd never even experienced my first angel investment exit yet because we've been investing for 3 years. So it was a really cool experience for our syndicate LPs and myself to actually see a payout and see a, you know see the the profit distributions on Angelist. Um, it like kind of makes the whole investing experience real. Uh, which is really, which is a, you know, which is cool because like this was still a, a new career for me. I, you know, again, I I've only been an investor now for three years, so um, it was very, it was a really cool thing. And I know for a lot of our LPs, they were they were very excited because this was their first exit on Angelist or in um, our angel investment. So that was also a really cool experience for all of us on the investor side. Tell us, tell me about what it's like going from a startup founder then to also joining a bigger company, an established company. You you did spend some time there, correct?
1: I did, yeah. And before we do that, I just want to say, like, first and foremost, you were an early advocate. And it was so cool to, like, build our rapport and and to have your fund and the syndicate join. Like, that was something, you know, when I looked at the exit situation and scenario and, like, that was one of the big things I told Becky. I was like, hey, I'm not going to do a deal unless this makes sense for everyone. And when I mean everyone, I mean our shareholders and everyone that's been involved, all of our team members and, you know, I was very firm on that. Um, you know, obviously they negotiated against us a bit. Um, you know, they, they, they dropped the initial price down, uh, because the market turned unfortunately, but you know, it still was a win for everyone. And so I I just want to say thank you to you and, and to all the LPs, because that was, uh, you know, something when I build companies and I bring in investors, like I consider it like my responsibility my duty, obviously fiduciary, but like It's just an honor. It's an honor to be able to pay back people that said, Hey, I'm I'm betting on you guys early. And to me, like as someone that comes from nothing, you know, that always to me like speaks volumes. And so I I just want to say I appreciate you and and the LPs that that believed in this as well. So
0: it's a great, it's a great thing, you know, for us. It's such it's like a it's a special thing that we can we can almost democratize the investing experience through the syndicate model because we get to bring people along with us on the deals that we're excited about. And now we have people to talk about them with, to share insights with. So, And you've actually been an active participant now on the other side as well in syndicates. And you've done a variety of angel investments as well now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been angel investing for a long time. I got involved with your syndicate kind of heavy in like 2021, I think, when you started going – uh, you know, you started getting going, you know, just active here and there, small checks just to get involved. You know, if I like the deal early on, I want to get my foot in the door and then later stage, you know, I might write bigger checks. That's kind of how I'll, I've always kind of played the angel investing game. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love it. And I think AngelLess has done a phenomenal job. Like, you know, 10 years ago when I was building and doing tech investments and just building tech, you know, Angel list wasn't as, uh, wasn't as feature rich, and it wasn't as beneficial to f- founders. You know, now with angel list syndicates and SPVs and just everything that they have, I think like it it is much easier. I wouldn't say m- maybe not easier. It's it's a simpler process to raise now, which is great for founders. um And go back to your original Hello. question. Uh, you know, Beckett was my first actual job. You know, I've never had a job in my life. Um, so me neither actually. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was it took a little getting used to to kind of like you know but for me obviously there was benefit you know we had a bit of an earn out it made sense like I wanted to provide value it was a company that I, I really you know uh you know appreciated like the founding you know I had a, like affinity for the brand so that made it a little easier um but you know like like any big company like they have Lots of, you know, layers and things just, you know, aren't always as easy as they maybe could be with different, you know, layers of, of people. And you get to bigger companies, there's just a lot more, the, you know, complexity to get things done versus a startup, which I'm used to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I've had exits in the past, most of which I don't join the acquiring company or I, I prefer not to. I, I, I usually don't want to do an earnout just because it can be complex. Um, but you know, regardless, I think like my time there was, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a learning experience. I think it was a it was a it was a good experience that I'll take with me and uh, be able to use, you know, for future endeavors. So
0: no, no doubt that makes total sense. I mean, it is, uh, you know, like you, myself, like I my acquisition part of my acquisition process actually when I sold Wade and Wendy was actually looking at opportunities where I wouldn't have to stay on. Um, because for uh, you know, I was already at the very end of that process, getting deep into Web three. I already built out the syndicate. I knew I wanted to get, uh, I wanted to go full time in venture and start to invest and deploy capital. So like I knew that as, as part of my process, I was looking to find a place where I didn't actually have to stay on for that period of time, because I knew I uh, you know I'd, I'd ultimately be distracted on on all the stuff that I was starting to work on as I was go, because I was you know the process of closing. You know, the process of closing a deal, even when it's on the, the the five yard line, for us, it took like almost six months to close the deal. So like that's a six month process where pretty much my full time job was just closing an an acquisition uh, journey because then, and, you know, the rest of my team and managers had their, their marching orders. But like, so I was already planting seeds towards what I was going to do next. Um, so I guess that lends itself to, okay, so you spent how long there? About a year?
1: Yeah, it was about a year. Okay. And
0: Um, and when, when did you, uh, when did
1: that end? September to September, I think actually. So I think it was exactly a year.
0: Okay. Very cool. So now what's, uh, what's
1: next for you? So, you know, I've got some side stuff I've been working on. Um, one, one, I'm going to just keep kind of stealth. I'll, I'll share with you, you know, offline, but, um, man, I've just been enjoying, I have a, I have a, a three-year-old daughter and a five-month-old daughter. And so, you know even before this like every waking moment is about being with them and and just being the best dad i can uh you know we're like in miami now I, i took her to the children's museum yesterday we're at the science center this morning we're going to uchi later to get some sushi um you know i've been surfing every day i'm in satellite beach so i'm in florida now i moved there from la about a year ago um and just enjoying life man um you know, giving back to people that have been with me on my journey. Sorry, hold on a second.
0: No, that's wonderful. I was going to say, we, uh, I also have a four and a two year old. So I, it's funny. It's, it's crazy how much your life revolves around. Know? It's, you know, like it's yeah. carnivals, it's museums, it's playgrounds, it's whatever, any activity and entertainment we can get our hands on. It's like, yeah, keep them occupied.
1: Oh, dude, it's the best. Like, uh, it's like the absolute best. I could have never dreamed that being a father would be this amazing. And, um, you know, dude, I come from like a crazy past. Uh, you know, when I was younger, gotten a lot of trouble. You know, grew up in Southern California, came from a single mother household. At one point in time, like, you know, my my three siblings and I shared one bedroom in our two bedroom apartment. Uh, you know, I was in and out of institutions. Went to prison when I was young. Taught myself how to code while I was in prison without uh you know internet i, I had to use textbooks I, I taught myself how to basically like write html and and like be able to design basic websites while i was in prison uh, and then when i got out just continued like you know nonstop, uh just focused relentlessly on like being the best version of myself and like really just i've always had this vision for like who i want to be and and it always revolves around like business and like i've always felt like i'm a businessman Um, you know, and so like to be able to, to start realizing all these different dreams that I've had, uh, you know, through like the ups and downs has been incredible. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've been able to, you know, impact all my immediate family now, you know, like the bigger vision is like, okay, the more I can accomplish, the more I can impact like those second and third degrees around me, uh, which has always been like the reason I do this, you know? So, uh, I think like, you know, I've got, I've got some cool stuff I'm working on. And uh, you know, excited to kind of see where, where it goes with that stuff too. So,
0: you know, it's amazing. You tapped on. You said you uh, taught yourself how to code while you were in prison. What was your inspiration? Like, did you did you get when you got into prison? Were you immediately like, okay, it's time to get to work, or was there a moment of like a moment of like, let me like, ooh, I'm inspired now. Let me make the most of this. Like, what what triggered you to like, because you you know, we've about this before like, uh, a powerful period of time for you. So like, what what was the inspiration there?
1: Uh, I'm on a rooftop, uh, and there's a plane flying by. So w- hold on one second. Um, so my uh, my journey started actually. So you know, from 14 to 22, was in a lot of trouble, and I got into a fight in Vegas uh, on a vacation. My buddy was actually getting beat up by two guys. I jumped in. I, I you know, I beat these guys up. And that fight is actually what sent me to prison at 28. I violated probation that I was on by traveling out of state without a permit uh, because I was building another company. I created a company called Progenics. It was a sports nutrition company in my early 20s. I was a co-founder with a, a bunch of other guys. And uh, you know, I was out in Vegas at this event, a CrossFit event. Um, and so, so I had been successful. You know, At 22, I had changed my life around And unfortunately, because of the decision, the decisions I made when I was young, I ended up going to prison at 28. So, you know, six years from the point of the incident that happened, uh, I was a completely different person. You know, I wasn't getting in fights at that time. And even the fight I got into was more about like defending my friends. It's not like I was just going out and starting Mm -hmm. random fights. And so what ended up happening was when I got to prison, I I had no idea I was going to go to prison. It was a pretty harsh sentence to give someone I hadn't been in trouble and you know all that stuff but the judge decided hey this person should go to prison for the for what happened and so um you know when i got there I immediately like i was like i'm gonna use every single second of my time here to be the most productive uh i can be and, and come out of prison without like being in a deficit but actually being in a surplus um and so every waking moment i spent like reading and writing and working out and just doing things that would help you know, my life and my career when I got out, everyone always asks, Hey, were you afraid going into prison? I was like, no, I'm not afraid of like what humans, you know? And so it wasn't like being afraid of prison. It was more about being concerned about my future. Like I have this big vision and could I accomplish the things I wanted to accomplish, um, you know, by going through prison? Like would I, you know, would I have to re re, you know, revert to like selling drugs because I couldn't get a job. Like when I was younger, you know, um, I got out of prison you know, at 20, I got a prison at, so I went to prison actually technically one month away from my 20th birthday. So 27 and I got out at 29. So I did two years, a little over two years. And when I got out of prison, I had built, you know, Progenics, which was a, a multi-million dollar company, but I tried to get a job even at Starbucks and I couldn't get a job because of my, my record. So I immediately had to go right back into entrepreneurship and kind of figure it out as I, as I was going. So, you know, my journey has been, uh, it's been crazy, but it's been like absolutely re- rewarding. Um, and so I think like the gratitude I have for every ups and, you know, up and down that I've had and experienced because it's built me into the person I am now and, and the things that I've been able to accomplish on the business side. Um, I, I don't know anyone else that has been able to accomplish things like I have that have gone through like the prison system and just, you know, h- harsher obstacles than, than most. So it's given try? me a,
0: you find that um others like did, did others around you get inspired by the stuff that you were doing while you were while you were there? Like did they see what you were doing? Oh yeah.
1: There? Oh yeah, dude. I had my whole yard was doing CrossFit because that's the the style of working out that I was doing. I was teaching dudes like I had this guy, um, oh, what was his name. It's like I can't remember his name. T Money. T Money was one of my guys. I was teaching him pre-money valuation, post-money. I was teaching him basically how to raise money from sophisticated investors if they wanted to build a startup. You know, like we Amazing. were we were having like you know tech time, uh, you know, on the yard. And yeah, dude, like I, I do think like if you're if you're a a leader and you you, you truly like do what you say and believe in what you do, um, you can have a. a a a very positive impact around, you know, the people around you and, and, you know, first, second and third degree around you. Um, So yeah, yeah, that happened in prison too.
0: That's, that's fantastic. All right. Let's, let's just talk quickly about if you were to now to flip your hat and and as an investor, there's a new market now. I mean, it's a different market from when you were raising uh, originally. So like now there's a new market. Um, what are, what are you looking, what, as like, let's put your investor hat on, what excites you, what types of, uh, businesses are you looking for or technologies are you looking for? Like, tell me some of the things that you get, that get you excited if you put your investor hat on.
1: Yeah. So I always look at, there's three, three things I always look at. And then there's a fourth criteria that's like a bonus, but, um, you know, the one thing is tech. So I I like to invest in like deep tech or infrastructure tech, or there's gotta be some competitive advantage that the tech uh, that the company's building is tech. And so I typically invest in tech companies, uh, rarely will I invest in like consumer brands or just, uh, you know, there's, there's typically a tech component to what I invest in. So tech is, is obviously like my big thing timing. And this is more of like, Hey, I'm just using my gut instinct or I've done a little bit of research or I know a little bit of the space, but I feel like that the timing of this tech has to be right. Um, And it doesn't necessarily have to be right right now. If it can be right in two years or 10 years, like I at least want to see that the timing of this, in my opinion, gut reaction, or just, I may lean on experts if I don't have true domain expertise in whatever the space is um, to give me like some insights. But uh, so tech and timing is really big. And then team, you know, team is obviously one thing that, um, you know, is, 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 really important in my opinion and then when i'm building companies but then also when i'm looking to invest uh do i believe this is the team that can accomplish what they think they can um you know is it the right timing and is this the right tech and then the bonus that i look for is distribution you know what's their uh acquisition strategy do they have a competitive advantage is there some sort of uh, unique lever that they're they're using to get customers like what does that distribution strategy look
0: like mm-hmm. and are there any like certain sectors or areas of technology or even like specific examples that come to mind of things that have been appealing to you more recently?
1: Um, Yeah, I think like, uh, I mean, I've been in AI for, I don't know, since like 2016. So, you know, I think
0: that there's a bit of a really interesting time for AI right now. Yeah. And I think obviously
1: there's a bit of a hype cycle around AI. Um, I'm sometimes a little less, um, I won't be as aggressive if I do think that there's a bit of a hype cycle around something. It just depends too. Like, um, but you know, obviously AI is And when I say AI, I want to see like true AI. I don't necessarily like, I don't necessarily think like the generative, uh, you know, like the generative hype is going to maybe last as long. Um, I, I want to see like either computer vision or machine vision, something that's unique. I want to see like proprietary models, you know, I don't want just like a, an application built on some other layer. Um, you know, I want like deep AI. I want deep tech. Uh, infrastructure is always a big one. Um, you know, there's the media's, you know, saying that fintech is dying and all this BS. I do think fintech is still very much alive. And I always like to see unique fintech plays. Um You know, I think um, space is an interesting one. There's a lot of space stuff happening, a lot of startups building in space and building for space. I think that's really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is just some like industries that immediately come to mind. Uh, You know, collectibles, I'm still very much involved, uh, whether it's physical collectibles or digital. You know, I think there's still lots of opportunity there. Um, You know, we could talk NFTs and and crypto if you want before we, we, we take off today. but
0: uh, yeah, I, yeah a, I do think. I was literally just about to transition to ask you a quick question there about real-world assets on chain. Like, that's a huge. Um, that's a, that's a huge thing I'm hearing a lot about these days, which is like they're like being able to tokenize um, traditional real-world assets and create new marketplaces, new DeFi vehicles. What are your thoughts in that area?
1: Yeah, I think the DeFi vehicles get a little dicey. Depending on what it is. But um, I, I do think like physical assets on chain is something that we actually were wanting and thinking about doing with Dilly to be able to track, you know, ownership, to be able to have like all of the, you know, so Dudilli is a use case, you know, track all of the different card assessments that every card could have over time, unique ownership, you know, to be able to track all that stuff, I think is really important. Um, you know, luxury watches obviously are a big one. And I think like, to be able to use deep tech, uh, not just blockchain, but even computer vision and other deep tech, to be able to, you know, track stolen watches or reduce counterfeits. Um, so, you know, watches are any any physical um, collectible of that sort. I think you know technology should and will eventually be able to accomplish that, um, you know, across the board. So, yeah, I, I've seen also, like, embedding NFTs within collectibles, physical collectibles, uh, which I think is, uh, I think, you know, personally, that's probably a better use case for the, you know, like, the the avatar profile pics that we saw kind of in, like, the, the you know, NFT hype.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, like, I think you are probably the only person I know that actually bought NFTs for the art. i don't think i know everyone else lied about it but i think you actually were doing that Uh, you know but i think like that was that was you know uh, that was something that was yeah everyone was buying nfts because they thought they could make a quick buck i mean dude i took i think it was like 0.4 eth at the time which was like 800 dollars, and put it into you know some monkey pictures and at one point in time like they were the, the full portfolio was valued over like a million bucks. Like, how can you take $800 and turn it into a million dollars? Like, that's there was no, insane. No, there was There's no, nothing, else. nothing else.
0: Nothing else in the world. I mean, I we were flipping Zed horses. We were flipping yeah. You know, Zed, <laughs> yeah. The apes. Yeah, I mean, listen, what brought me into NFTs to begin with was art. I mean, I the first thing I ever did, um, the first NFT I ever purchased was back in 2018. It was um, art on super rare. So like, you know, I have two digital frames in my home where I display art that I like and I appreciate just like it was a physical piece. So yeah, no, totally. Like I was one of those few people that, that I'm still at, are one of the, the people that really believe in the, the digital art as a new medium and a new art form. I think that we, you know, listen, the first wave of all crypto so far has been speculation. You know what I mean? Speculation has been the first major use case Across almost every single crypto component, whether it's you know DeFi or NFTs, um, which have been the two most you know kind of the two biggest drivers of adoption of Web3 to date, speculation has been at the backbone of those. But there's real technology being built, real utility being built into these, um, into this like foundation, and whatever it takes to get exposure and adoption, I'm for. If it takes, yeah. if it takes pictures, so be it. But I believe right. that. That gets us a little bit closer to the end game, which you know, I believe that all assets tokenized. There needs to be, especially in a world with AI becoming more and more prevalent, where we are we're not gonna know if AI or a human created something and we're never gonna know what the provenance of things are. My opinion is all of this stuff needs to be on chain. So that there's a there's like a, a supply chain and a proof of a proof of ownership and a proof of provenance and a proof of where the things uh, what were the inputs to create a piece of content or an asset? So to me, this yeah. is becoming more and more important. Um, but we're going to need—you know—we need little pushes. You know, I, like I've been saying for a while, think like, gaming will probably be the next the next big push of Web3, um, where mainstream game mainstream gaming introduces a a, a far a far a, like a, a much larger audience than we've even seen from DeFi and, and NFTs yet. But uh, I'm also excited to see what the evolution of NFTs will be and what the what's the next. What's the next creative innovation around the idea that content tokenized?
1: Yeah, I agree. I've been so I I bought Bitcoin in 2013 when I got out of prison. I had some buddies. They're like, "Dude, look at this!" I was like, "Wow, that's crazy." I don't know what I'm buying. It, you know, it was back in the day when I think I had it like on a on a uh, on a uh, on hardware. You know, like I don't even think I had. I, I don't even remember because it was so I long had, ago.
0: But I had to meet someone around the corner. I had to meet someone in Merrick it was like buying weed. I had to like pick up. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sc- I scanned this QR code and gave him cash. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can't even remember how I bought my buddies helped me. Cause I was like, not very technical at that time. Um, and you know, so I, but I used to go to like Bitcoin meetups and, you know, and w- w- then it was, it was all about this, like, this like revolt against, Hey, this is like yep. why the system is against us. And this is why we stand for what we stand with crypto and why it democratizes and how it's going to help like the 99%. And since then, like I've always believed with that thesis of crypto, you know, I was a part of like the ICO craze and ups and downs of that. And, you know, early in NFTs, you know, like, you know, top shot, like you said. So I've I've seen these boom and bust cycles. Um, And I agree, like, I think whatever it takes to get that adoption and if we're truly talking that web3 is this revolution that's going to upend the entire digital infrastructure that has been laid for decades like we can't expect that to happen in like a 12 month cycle like this is going to take some time and okay. so i do think all of these advancements that we make you know whether they're you know yeah defi whether it's nfts like all the uh, the adoption even like retailers allowing more and more retailers allowing people to pay with things with crypto, like I do think that is still onboarding a lot more people than we've ever seen, and and it will continue to happen. Um, you know, it it gets convoluted when all these big banks get involved, and like then it becomes like okay, like where are we still the crypto community that once existed for fighting for the right cause? Like that's where I have some trouble with. I don't even know because that you just get to a place where crypto is so big now; it's bigger than I ever thought it would 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 be, and who knows where it's going to go. But, um, you know, I'm still dollar cost averaging averaging into Bitcoin every month, you know, for my babies, you know, like if crypto is supposed to be like what it's supposed to be, then like, there's no reason I shouldn't be putting money into it and, and saving that for future generations. So um, that, that's kind of like where my head's
0: at with that, you know? Yep, I'm in complete agreement. Um, no, definitely a line there. All right, Andrew, you're the man, buddy. Um, it's great to catch up. I'm super excited to see what you're working on next. Uh, I'm always interested to see how we can this. Um, Everybody else watching, where can you follow you?
1: Sorry, you broke up. What'd you say?
0: For everyone watching, where can they follow you, find you?
1: Man, I'm trying to stay low key these days. But if you need to find me, uh, go to Instagram or Twitter at Andrew Metal. W. A A N D R E W M E D A
0: L. All right, great um, guys. For everybody else, um, looking forward to every week. We're do we're releasing a new episode of Red Beard Radio where we are diving into various different businesses and categories and sectors that we invest in out of the uh, Red Beard Ventures Angelist Syndicate. Um, and uh, we, you know, these are companies and opportunities that that we want to learn more about so that we can understand, so that we can make better investment decisions and be able to then educate our LP base, which now is about I think we're approaching 4,000 LPs in our Angela Syndicate. You'll find the link to the Angel Angelus Syndicate below. Um, but these are all types of companies and businesses and categories that we're investing in alt assets. We have a wide range of investments that are that are associated to various alt asset sectors. Um, and we open those up to our community of LPs to be able to invest in as well. So um, yeah, I'm Drew Austin, uh, the founder of Redbeard Ventures and our host. Feel free to like, comment, and subscribe. Um, and I'll see you next week. Thank you, everybody, for joining. And Andrew, thanks so much, buddy. Thanks, brother. All right, talk soon, buddy. This has been a Redbeard Ventures production.